0: If you would, would you turn to our master text in the book of Genesis, chapter 12? Genesis, chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you some introductory thoughts here. You know, when I came to the end of the last series that we did, I was sort of drawing a blank on what to talk about next. And that's not common for me. Typically, uh, the Lord gives me a little bit of heads up when I'm nearing the end of a series. The Lord tends to give me a little bit of heads up on what He wants me to talk about next. So it's usually seamless for me, typically, from one series to the next. But I came to the end of that series. I had no idea what I was going to talk on next. I was just completely drawing a blank. And I prayed a few times, Lord, what do you want me to pray on? And I, I didn't really get a sense. And, and then I was in the shower. How, how many of you get ideas in the shower? OK, I'm not the only one. OK, so I was in the shower and I just I, I just stopped. And I said, Lord, I, I'm clueless. I'm drawing a blank here. What do you want me to preach on? And immediately, boom, replacement theology dropped in my heart, which I know was from God because I've never given replacement theology a second thought in terms of teaching on it before. Um, so I know that this is something that the, is on the Lord's heart that he wants me to teach on. And before we read our master text, let me just define what replacement theology is. That's a a belief in some circles of the church that Christians have replaced the Jews and that the nation of Israel no longer has any spiritual or historical relevance and that we Christians are the new Jews. Okay, so that's replacement theology. That's what I want to address this morning. So with that thought in mind, let's go ahead and read our master text. Stand up with me, if you will. Let's honor the reading of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 12, first three verses. This is the call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, was this blessing that we just read about, was that blessing for Abram only? Well, clearly not, because the Old Testament and history right up until the modern times proves that God comes to the rescue of Israel. Time and again, God kept this promise to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. Even as recently as 1967, as an example, an alliance of eight Arab nations ganged up and converged upon Israel and Israel was hopelessly outnumbered. Yet miraculously, Israel won an overwhelming victory in a battle that lasted only six days. In a war that became known as the Six-Day War. So I want to read to you a little bit about uh, that. Uh, some of the miracles that happened during that war. Now, now by the way, this is just uh, some very brief um, excerpts from an article called Fulfilling God's Promises, The Miracles of Israel's Six-Day War. And this is out of CBN Israel, a pub- uh, online publication. All right, so I want to read this together because this is evidence of God's hand still being on Israel even in modern times. So let's read together. Um, one Israeli infantry recruit on patrol with one other soldier reported an encounter with a truck loaded with 18 well-armed Egyptian soldiers. The two Israelis, equipped with inadequate weapons, believed that they faced a certain death. However, the Arabs, looking panic-stricken, did not fire on them and complied immediately when the Israeli soldier then shouted, Hands up! Later, he asked an Egyptian sergeant why they hadn't shot at the Israeli soldiers. The reply, my arms froze. They became paralyzed. My whole body was paralyzed, and I don't know why. Here's another one. Arabs not only gave in to their fears and waved, white flags of surrender, one tank commander later explained that he gave up to to a far smaller number of Jewish tanks because he saw a desert mirage that made him see hundreds of Israeli tanks, he said. (laughs) Thus, it should be no surprise that the secular newspaper, Horetz, carried this comment by one of its military correspondents. Quote, Even a non-religious person must admit this war was fought with help from heaven. Praise God. But nevertheless, it's still obvious that differing views exist within the church concerning Israel on issues such as these. The theological place and role of the Jewish people, their right to live in their ancient homeland, and their relationship to the New Covenant. And I think that this is really something that God wants us to know more about in light of the the current conflict between Israel and an Arab terrorist group known as Hamas. Well, as I think you all might know, these bands of terrorist groups invaded the land of Israel recently and stormed into peaceful, unarmed neighborhoods, just like the ones around here. And literally cut people down in their own yards and stormed into people's homes, invaded people's homes, and murdered entire families. Now, at the risk of getting too graphic here, um, the last count was that 1,300 innocent citizens of Israel have been murdered and hundreds more taken captive. And here's the graphic part. Um, some people were burned alive and pregnant mothers ripped open and them and their babies murdered. Now, I want to show you something from the scriptures that is reminiscent of this. Is, Israel, is, a, is history repeating itself in Israel? Look at Amos 1.13 for a moment. This is what the Lord says. For three transgressions of the Ammonites, even four, I will not revoke my judgment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Again, we see history repeating itself here with these crimes against humanity. Yet, amazingly, in spite of these horrific atrocities, amazingly, there's been pro-Hamas and pro-Palestinian rallies around the U.S., and these same groups are condemning Israel for retaliating. Now, have there been innocent Palestinian people who have suffered as Israel has retaliated? Well, sure, but folks, that's nothing new in war. You know, our own American history is proof of that. We dropped two bombs on two metropolitan Japanese cities and killed hundreds of thousands of innocent, non-military civilian people. And of course, I think most people, we've been kind of conditioned to think that that's okay because it did end up ending the war and saving maybe millions of more lives. Because I think, what was it, 30 million people died in World War II. And so I think that there's a certain amount of justification that a lot of people would make about those particular acts. I think some people would disagree with that. But the point is, we're so easy to condemn Israel for retaliating, for the terrorism committed against them, but yet we're in the clear for dropping two atomic bombs on two metropolitan cities in Japan. It's a double standard. You can't have one without the other. Make up your mind. Okay. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that Israel has done everything perfect. They probably made lots of mistakes and errors in judgment, and maybe even some atrocities of their own, as has America. America is not guiltless either. There's wickedness in both nations. But we have to acknowledge, ladies and gentlemen, that God has a different measuring rod of justice compared to us feel like I need to say that again. God has a different measuring rod of justice compared to us. And you know, if we Christians would spend half as much time evangelizing the lost as we do condemning things that we have no control over anyway, we might actually make some progress and make an impact in this world, for goodness sake. But I digress. I want to show you something else that's fascinating along these lines. Um, I'm going to read to you 7:23 and it says this forge the chain for the land is full of crimes and bloodshed and the city is full of violence now first of all that word chain there is a word that depicts captivity so there's many israeli people that have been taken into captivity by hamas many more murdered and the city is full of violence Now, that word violence, by the way, I think you'll be interested to know, is a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is Hamas. So I think it's no accident that this terrorist group is called Hamas because violence is their M.O. And violence against the Hebrew or Jewish people is their goal. So I think that they chose that word on purpose. Why, though, should this conflict in the Middle East matter to us other than the fact that our hearts break over the horrible atrocities being committed? Well, beyond that, is there any relevance to Israel that Christians need to know about? Well, yes. and that leads to today's discussion on replacement theology. Now, by the way, <clears throat> there probably won't be a lot of how-tos today or guidance from the scriptures on how to live your life um, in this teaching. but How many of you know that God's Word is instructive to us not only where our behavior is concerned, but also in how to think and how to believe? In other words, God's Word should shape our worldview. Would you agree with that? So this teaching is going to be 100% doctrine today, (laughs) which I realize, especially for you younger ones, may seem very tedious and boring, so I hope you won't tune me out it may actually require a little extra effort on your part today to stay hooked with me um, but i hope you will listen attentively because i do believe this topic is important and i'm gonna explain why it's important here in a moment but b- before i do that i want to just give you the comparison side-by-side side here on the screen of replacement theology versus the what i'm calling the grafted in theology and you'll you'll see why i'm, I'm calling it that here in a moment let's look at replacement theology first the whole premise of replacement theology is that the church is viewed as spiritual Israel and spiritual Jerusalem therefore the belief here is that biblical prophecies promises and blessings given to Israel now belong to the church while Israel and the Jewish people retain the curses and judgments and or are now theologically irrelevant now the grafted-in theology, however, is that Gentile believers have been grafted into the vine, the vine being Jesus, along with the faithful remnant of Israel according to Romans chapter 11 verses 17 through 21, and that salvation is a result of grace alone through faith in Jesus, but God still maintains a special love for the Jews. As such, Israel is still relevant. Now as we look at these two opposing viewpoints side by side let me say that I am sympathetic to replacement theology. I'm sympathetic to it I don't agree with the conclusion but I understand why people end up believing this way because there are some passages in the scriptures that seem to allude to this if they're not interpreted correctly. So This is not like some theological positions that I have no idea how people arrive at. For example, I have no idea how people can believe that miracles and the fivefold ministry and gifts of the Spirit passed away with the first century, with the first apostles. I have no idea how people come to that conclusion because there's not a single scripture in the Bible that alludes to that, not one. So, I have no idea how people end up believing that. Those are called cessationists, by the way, that the gifts and miracles ceased with the first. I I wrote a book on that called Discarded Treasures, if you ever want to learn more about that. I have no idea, no clue how people end up believing that. But this topic today is not like that. Okay? This issue is different because I do see how people can get this confused. So, my goal here is to help to sort out the fact that replacement theology is based on departures from both Scripture and history. And again, why is this topic even important enough to talk about? Well, if replacement theology is correct, follow me on this now, if replacement theology is correct, then there doesn't seem to be any consequences for people who believe otherwise. In other words, if replacement theology is correct and I'm wrong, well, there doesn't seem to be any consequences for my error Because I'm still a believer in Jesus Christ and I'm still in covenant with God through my faith in Jesus Christ. However, if replacement theology is wrong, then there does seem to be some consequences uh, for those who hold this view, namely, that they miss out on the benefits of blessing Israel. And furthermore, they even can seem to subject themselves to some curses in some degree for opposing Israel, according to our master text in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So, as for me, I'll take my chances in siding with those who support Israel and let God sort out the rest. Amen? Amen? All right. there's actually several different errors on replacement theology that I could have brought to your attention today. I actually had six of them lined up that I was going to try to cram into this teaching today. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll do a little mini-series on it. But I didn't think I could hold your attention enough, long enough um, to do a whole series on this. So I'm going to try to condense this down into one teaching today and just give you one of the six major errors of replacement theology. And that the one I'm going to deal with this morning is that Israel was used by God and then discarded by God. So replacement theology contends that the Jewish people were used to prepare the way for the Messiah. But with Jesus' coming, this particular period of salvation history came to an end and the church became the new expression of God's plan of salvation. Well, that much I think we can agree upon. But at the extreme end of this view, which is where a lot of people are, replacement theology supports the argument that since the Jews rejected Jesus, God has rejected them entirely. And as such, the Jewish people have no destiny, no elective distinction, and no future. In this view, the only way that a Jew has any theological relevance at all is if he or she accepts Jesus as their Savior and becomes a member of the church. Yet Paul, the Apostle Paul, addresses God's attitude toward the Jewish people and their role in salvation history in his discourse in Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, and most especially in one verse in Romans 11, verse 1. So let's read that together. This is the Apostle Paul uh, uh, talking here, writing here. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? Far from it. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, says Paul. Now, by the way, you may be interested in knowing that the term Israel is used on 79 occasions in the New Testament, and in every case to refer to the physical people of Israel and never as a substitute term for the church. Likewise, the expressions, quote-unquote, new Israel and spiritual Israel cannot be found in the New Testament. So that's a really important perspective there as we move forward. But I want to deal with this question this morning. What is the Israel of God? Because we see that phrase in the New Testament, and some people get confused about who the Israel of God is actually is now let me be quick to point out here that simply being jewish doesn't save a person so i want to make that really clear simply being jewish does not save a person both jew and gentile must come to god through faith in the finished work of jesus christ on the cross period okay are we clear on that And because that's true, I I think it's understandable why some people would mistakenly believe that there's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Well, in the case of salvation, that's actually true. And Galatians chapter 3 speaks to this when the Apostle Paul wrote that, now in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. But folks, let me point something out here. Paul was using a figure of speech. This wasn't designed to be taken literally. He's using a figure of speech. Let me explain what I mean. In that passage I just quoted, for example, it says that there's neither male nor female. So is the Bible promoting then some sort of transgenderism? No, certainly not. We know there's still male and female in a biological and cultural sense. What the the Apostle Paul was saying here, that in a spiritual sense... In a spiritual sense, there's now no particular benefit to being a male or a female because through Christ, we're now all one. That's what he was saying. Yet, males and females still have their important roles in the family, society, and the church. Accordingly, we know that are still Jews and Gentiles and they too have their particular and specific relevance. Well, I want us to look at here... A passage from Galatians 6 on this point, what is the Israel of God? And I want to zero in on one important word that shows that the Apostle Paul was pronouncing a blessing on those in Christ and Israel, who he calls the Israel of God. Let's read together. Galatians 6, verses 15 and 16. I'm reading this out of the New American Standard Version. I'm doing that for a reason. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. Verse 15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And all who will follow this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Meaning there's a distinction between the two. Now, let's read it out of the New King James Version. They also got it right. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Why am I emphasizing that word and? Because some of the other translations, they actually either remove that word. Well, they do. They remove the word. It makes it look like, well, I'll show you. And actually, before I show you some of these other translations, you know me. I think there's many good translations of the Bible. I think there's a few bad ones too. I don't agree with people who adhere to the King James only type of philosophy, but you'll be happy to know. I know that I've said that before and you King Jamesers out there, you're going to be happy with me this morning because it was the new American standard and the new King James and the King James were actually the the part of the few that got this verse right. Some of the other ones didn't get it right. So let me show you the ones, some ones that didn't get it right. The NIV, I'm an NIV guy. I like the NIV, thinks it's a good translation. In this case, in this verse, they did not get it right. Let's read this. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, dash, to the Israel of God, which makes it look like he's lumping everybody into the same camp there. They removed the word and and replaced it with a dash. You can't do that. In translating the Bible, you can't remove words out of the Bible, for goodness sake. Let me show you two other ones here. This is the New Living Translation, which another one that I like, but there are some problems in that one, too says this, may God's peace and mercy be uh, upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. It's not what that says. As a matter of fact, they even removed the word Israel. You you can't do that in, in, in good Bible scholarship, ladies and gentlemen. And then the good news translation is the worst of the group. As for those who follow this rule in their lives, may peace and mercy be with them, with them and with all of God's people. I think by removing the word Israel in those last two, they they really confuse the matter. And so if you're reading one of these more modern translations of the Bible, I can understand why people would get confused about replacement theology, because those verses definitely do make it look like we've replaced Israel and we're the new Israel. But that word and right there in that passage is very important. It's supposed to be there. God put it there for a reason because it makes that removing the word and completely changes the meaning of those passages. Okay, so that word and is the Greek word kahhi, and it means and, even, or also. So let's read that same passage out of another translation that got it right, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which says, May peace come to all who follow this standard and mercy To the Israel of God. Now, God, through the Apostle Paul, was pronouncing a blessing on those in Christ and on Israel, what they call the Israel of God. So, why did Paul give this benediction and this blessing then? Well, because he loved Israel. He said in another place that he would be willing to be eternally damned if it meant that the Jews could be saved. Yet at the same time, Paul was also quick to denounce any teaching that suggested that a person should believe in Jesus and uh, observe various Jewish laws and customs. See, the gospel that Paul preached and the one that we preach is that through faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves a person. It's faith through Jesus Christ alone that saves a person. and has nothing to do with observing any Jewish laws or customs. In fact, to suggest so is a damnable perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, on that note, Paul also wrote these words right here. Let's read this passage out of Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8, when he was addressing those who were trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ by suggesting, well, it's Jesus and circumcision. It's Jesus and these various Jewish laws and customs. He writes, I'm amazed how quickly you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is not even a gospel. Evidently, some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be under a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be under a curse. It's Jesus and nothing. Okay? Okay? And these people who Paul was referring to who were troubling them were coming in behind Paul's preaching and saying, yeah, it's Jesus, but Jesus and these Jewish customs. And that's a damnable perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's move on here. I want to also address who is the circumcision because the passage that we just read out of Galatians 6, um, later on in that, that same chapter in verse 15 says, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And likewise, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 11, a little bit of a longer passage here, but let's read this together, be patient. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's you and me, non-Christians, Gentiles in the flesh and called uncircumcised by those called the circumcision, that's the Jews, that done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, You were separate from Israel. I'm sorry, separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Praise God. Can somebody say hallelujah on that point? In Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, Watch out for those dogs. What dogs is it talking about? Those people that came in behind Paul to pervert his gospel by saying it's Jesus and these other things. That's what he was talking about. Watch out for those dogs, those workers of evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about circumcision. Okay? For it is we who are the circumcision, in a figurative sense. I'll explain this more in a moment. For it is we who are the circumcision, We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That means things added to the grace and mercy of God by the cutting of the flesh or some other Jewish law or custom. That's what he's talking about. So, it's clear... And this is kind of where it gets confusing a little bit, I think, for some people. It's clear that new covenant believers in Jesus are the real circumcision, the ones reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. We are not Israel, but we are the circumcision. And I realize that's where a lot of people get confused. We are the circumcision, because the Bible clearly says that, and we are the ones reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. And that's true of any Gentile or Jew who will place their faith in Jesus Christ. So, why then is there any relevance whatsoever to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people? And that's where I'm going to get to your notes, because I'm going to give you several reasons why Israel and the Jewish people are still relevant. The first one is this Jesus was fully Jewish and participating member in Jewish customs. That ought to speak volumes right there. Jesus was Jewish. (laughs) Okay? I think that that right there says a lot, but let's go on. How about the Bible? The Bible was written mostly and maybe exclusively by Jews and Jewish converts to Christianity. Why do I say maybe exclusively? Because out of the 44 men who penned the words of the Bible uh, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, 44 were clearly Jewish. The only one that maybe was not Jewish was Luke, the physician Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, um, tradition has taught us that, that Luke was a Greek, but there's some extra-biblical historical evidence that may indicate that Luke was actually a Hellenized Jew, which means that he was a Jew who then kind of broke off from Jewish tradition and started living a, a, a lifestyle of the Greeks. You know, uh, He had adopted the Greek way of life and then later became a Christian. So it very well could be that 100% of the writers All 44 were Jews or Jewish converts to Christianity. I think that's a very important point. Thirdly, the foundation of the New Testament is built upon the history and customs of the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament. You can't even really understand your New Testament fully until you understand your Old Testament. So, students of the Bible, don't give up on your Old Testament. I know some of it is a, is a bit tedious to get through sometimes, especially the, the books of judgment, you know, the, the prophetic books like Amos and what have you. They're just pronouncing one judgment after another upon Israel. And those are tough to wade through sometimes. But the, the, the Old Testament forms a foundation for the New Testament. You can't really even understand your New Testament as fully as you otherwise would unless you understand the Old Testament. Okay? And then... Fourthly, history shows that those who ally with Israel tend to do well, while those who oppose Israel do not. America has always stood with Israel, and America has always been prosperous. And some other countries that decide not to ally with Israel but oppose them, they have not. Now, some of their governments have been prosperous as they've they've hoarded they're resources to themselves, but they're everybody else, I mean, there's no middle class. There's the super rich and there's the super poor, typically, in some of these Arab nations. Okay, so they as a society have not done well. A lot of violence and poverty in a lot of these nations. Fifthly, God said that a remnant of Israel would be saved. Let me read you a scripture on this passage right here, Romans 11 Verses uh, verses 25 through 29, you really ought to go read all of Romans chapter 11 to really understand this fully. In fact, Romans 9, 10, and 11 would be great for you to read um, in your own private study. But let's read verses 25 through 29 in Romans 11. It says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not be conceited. He's talking to to, uh, Christians here. A hardening in part... Has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove godlessness from Jacob. Now, that word all there, when referring to all Israel will be saved, is the Greek word PAS, P A S, and it means every part of. So we could easily translate this to mean that Jews from all 12 tribes of Israel will eventually be saved. And likewise, Jews scattered all over the world. It doesn't mean that the Jews have a salvation on their own apart from Christ, nor does it mean that all Jews are going to get saved. It simply means that there will be Jews from every part of Israel and every part of the world who will be saved. Let's read the the rest of that passage. In Romans 11, verse 27. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Talking about Israel. Regarding the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies on your account. But regarding election, get this, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Irrevocable. This means that God's call on Israel has not been revoked. God still maintains a special love for the Jews and the nation of Israel because of His regard for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, etc. And you see this mercy of God as you walk through the Old Testament and you read in kind of horror and shock as the Israelites, the Israel and Judah... Rebel against God again and again and again in spite of his great mercy. And while God did eventually judge them harshly because of his promise to David, he refused to annihilate them or abandon them entirely. See, he remembered his covenant with David when showing mercy to his descendants, which leads me to our next point why Israel is still relevant. Well, God's prophetic promises to Israel are still unfolding. See, after Israel is spiritually restored, I'm talking prophetically here now from the, from the prophetic books of the Bible regarding Israel. After Israel is spiritually restored, Christ will establish His millennial reign and kingdom on the earth. Israel will be regathered from the ends of the earth according to Isaiah 11:12 and 62:10 and the symbolic dry bones of Ezekiel's vision will be brought together and covered with flesh if you remember that story and miraculously resurrected that story that you know Ezekiel's dry bones that was a prophecy about Israel that's what that was So you can find that in Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. But in particular, verse 14, I want to read to you. It says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Now, folks, as promised, the salvation of Israel will be both a spiritual awakening and a geographical location. A geographical home. Well, After centuries of being a dispossessed people, on May 14, 1948, a new state of Israel was officially established. See, the seemingly lost nation of Israel rose from the ashes and Jews from all over the world converged upon Israel as their new homeland. And a major prophecy was fulfilled. And in speaking of this regathering, Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum, a Hebrew Christian scholar, wrote the following. Look at the screen. There was to be a worldwide regathering in faith in preparation for blessing, namely the blessings of a messianic age. Once it is recognized that the Bible speaks of, su- of such regatherings, it's easy to see how the present state of Israel fits into prophecy. The present state of Israel fits in to prophecy, And Thomas Ice from Liberty University in his paper, Is Modern Israel Fulfilling Prophecy? Wrote this, Is the current state of Israel a work of God as predicted in Bible prophecy? Or is it merely an accident of history? And I've heard that from some uh, replacement theology folks. Well, you know, Israel being reestablished as a nation, that's interesting. But it doesn't have really any relevance. See, I've heard that even though it's clear that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. So let me, let's start over on this. Is the current state of Israel a work of God as predicted in Bible prophecy, or is it merely an accident of history? I believe that modern Israel is a divine work and is in the process of fulfilling Bible prophecy. I believe that Israel, as she is constituted today, is a work of God in progress which will lead to her national conversion, the second coming of Christ, and his millennial reign. Amen. Amen. Now, let's deal with some questions here. Let's deal with this question right here. Why does it seem that Satan has worked overtime to wipe Israel off the map? Why have they been the most persecuted people group in history? With the possible exception of Christians, but I think probably the the Jews are probably even more persecuted than Christians are. Why are they the most persecuted people group in history if there's no relevance to their nationality? Likewise, please note that Christians and Jews have done more good for the world than any other group or nationality down throughout history. Hospitals, orphanages, and humanitarian efforts have been consistently funded and spearheaded by Christians and Jews. Now again, those good deeds don't save a person because we, again, know that salvation is based on faith in Christ alone. But it does seem to me that there's still an element of God's hand that is still working through the Jews. And there will be a remnant that will be saved. Now... Some people are quick to point out that some of the most evil people in the world and throughout history have been Jews, George Soros being one of them. Well, folks, George Soros sold out his own people to the Nazis during World War II. George Soros has been an evil person since he was a teenager. And while I can name off many Jews who are evil people, I can name just as many Gentiles, if not a whole lot more, who are also evil. So that's a dead-end argument. We also have to ask, why is it that when people turn to Christ in other parts of the world that are hostile to Israel, that they all of a sudden begin to develop a love for Israel? For example, the biggest underground church in the world is in communist China. And listen to this. Countless churches in China fly the flag of Israel. Did you know that? Likewise, the fastest growing underground church in the world right now is in Iran. And of course, we know the government of Iran hates Israel. But one, one of the things that happens when Jew-hating Arabs come to Christ is that God begins to give them a love for the nation of Israel. That's a fact. And that's why I think that some of this replacement theology is based in anti-Semitism, which is a term, if you're not familiar with that, some of you younger folks, anti-Semitism is a term that means bigotry against Jews. But having said that, I also acknowledge that this is a very complex issue, and I don't necessarily think that one teaching is going to cover all the potential questions, questions and objections that somebody might have. So if you still have questions and re- reservations about this after today's teaching, well, I can forward some additional study material for you if you'd like. But for now, I'm going to give you one more point here under... Our heading, why is Israel still relevant? That's not in your notes. I added this later, and then we're going to end, okay? And my last one, number seven, is this. If God made a distinction between Jew and Gentile, so should we. And I'm going to give you some biblical evidence that he did make a distinction. In Romans 2, verses 9 and 10, it says this. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. God's clearly making a distinction between Gentile Christians and Jews. In fact, if you lifted this passage out of context, you could almost build a theology that God's making preferential treatment here for the Jews. Because he says, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. But... Of course, we don't lift things out of context. We read the whole Bible in context, so that would not be an accurate statement. But if you are going to say that God prefers one over the other, um, that verse right there almost makes it seem like God's giving preferential treatment to the Jews. First for the Jew, then for the Greek. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. But of course, we also know that the Bible teaches us that God shows no favoritism. Okay, is this all right? Okay, here's my last slide right here. We're almost done. Psalm 122. And before I read this, I just want to say that I believe that one of the ingredients in living in the divine favor of God is our attitude toward Israel. So Donna, would you come up and play something? I'm going to read this passage and then we're going to pray. Psalm 122, verses 6 through 9 says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you prosper. May there be peace within your walls and prosperity inside your fortresses. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Amen. Please stand with me and let's pray.